Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, people on Podcast Land. I am Ezra Klein, host of, well, The Ezra Klein Show, a Vox.com and Panoply podcast. This is the second edition of the show. The first one, which I hope you heard and enjoyed and shared with all your friends, was an interview with the great Rachel Maddow. And I wanted to, to start that show by jumping right in. But before we get to today's interview with Washington's super lobbyist Tony Podesta, I wanted to talk for a moment about the theory of this show and, and, and what you can expect. Um, I'm going to try to do a couple things in these conversations that are not totally normal. And I, I want to tell you why so it's not totally confusing. The first is that I want to make these interviews as evergreen as I possibly can. I want you to be able to come into the episode archive a year from now, even five years from now, click on Rachel's interview and, and really enjoy it. And, and that means not asking questions about what is going on in the news right now. So if you don't hear me ask about this or that story that is completely dominating the headlines this week, that's why. I, I didn't forget. I'm not afraid to press my guest on it, but it's not what I'm trying to do here. I want to give you a lasting record of how my guests think about the world, not an ephemeral look at what they thought about the specific stories going on in the world right now. The next thing is that I really want this to be a place where you can understand why people are the hero of their own story. I'm going to make it a point in this series to talk with a lot of people I don't agree with, sometimes people I really won't agree with. And while I'm going to try to be very present in those conversations and I want to press them in places where I'm confused about why they think what they think or confused about whether the evidence supports them, I'm not trying to do takedowns here. The goal is to understand their thinking, not, not to prove them wrong. I think there are plenty of venues in politics right now where we tell each other why the people we disagree with are stupid, are completely wrong, or are total idiots. I want this to be a place where you can see, where I get to learn, how the people we disagree with are smart and how a smart person could hold those positions and, and maybe even why those positions are more right than, than I think. Um, third, and, and we're almost done with the, the preamble here, these are conversations. I intend to be a part of them. I'm not a cipher. I'm a, I'm a pretty opinionated guy. I've never made a secret about that. But I also think people give different answers, maybe more honest answers, when they're in the give and take of a conversation, as opposed to a more structural, formal, artificial setting where they're the only one talking. One reason I was open to this being called the Ezra Klein Show, despite the fact that it embarrasses me to say that name aloud, is that I'm the constant in it, and I'm present in it, and, and I want to be honest about that. 
With that said, I want to move on to today's conversation. It is with Tony Podesta, who's a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and a really big one. When the New York Times profiled him, the headline was simply Tony Podesta, comma, super lobbyist. And there is no more loathed occupation in this city than super lobbyist. Nobody ever says they like lobbyists, and yet D.C., it, it's full of lobbying, and lobbying is a really important part of how decisions are made here, of how information is spread, of, of what policies end up happening and, and which ones don't. And, and how lobbying works on the day-to-day -day level, I think, is, is really misunderstood, both by people who oppose it and by people who support it. So one reason I, I wanted to talk with Podesta is to get that on-the-ground understanding of what it is like to be a lobbyist what you actually do when you wake up in the morning. And in a world where your profession is a bit of a dirty word, why it feels like a good thing to do, because I've met a lot of lobbyists over the years, and the calling feels noble to them in ways I don't think people usually understand. Podesta has a long background in democratic politics. He worked for Eugene McCarthy, for Ted Kennedy, for Michael Dukakis, and many more. In fact, his brother, John Podesta, is the current chairman of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. So Tony Podesta is a really plugged-in guy. He knows his town better than just about anybody else alive. And he represents some of the biggest companies. Um, he represented BP after the oil spill. He represented Bank of America after the financial crisis. So, so why does he do it? How, how did he get into doing it? And what the hell does he actually do in a day? And is it good for the country that he's doing this? These are the questions we get into in our conversation. I, it was a really interesting conversation for me. I hope it will be for you. This is a new show, so please rate it on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Let people know what's going on. Tell your friends. Please email me your feedback at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And if you really like what you're hearing here, I have another podcast you can subscribe to as well. It's called The Weeds, and it's a weekly policy conversation between me and a couple of the smartest people I know. If you like what you hear here, you'll probably like what you hear there. With all that said, thank you for listening, and here's Tony Podesta. Tony Podesta, thank you for being here. Pleasure. So talk to me a little bit about your path here. Tell me what your first job in politics was. My first job in politics was to run away from graduate school in, in Cambridge to go work for Eugene McCarthy. You were at MIT, right? I was at MIT, yeah. and I went to New Hampshire to help run the, the McCarthy campaign in New Hampshire. I ran one of the counties along the Vermont border before Bernie Sanders. McCarthy did sufficiently well in that and, and another couple of primaries that Lyndon Johnson ended up dropping out of the race so it was my first. Uh, it was my first political victory. Were you crushed or pleased when Bobby Kennedy jumped in? Pleased, I, I admired him, and almost did not sound soupy. I, I was, you know, I, I loved Bobby Kennedy. I, I loved McCarthy too. I thought they were two unique characters in American politics, each with his own way of looking at things, and and I thought they were. McCarthy was cool. Kennedy was Kennedy was hot. Kennedy was passionate. McCarthy was dispassionate. But I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to choose between them. You know, I thought one of them would end up dropping out to the other. And, and unfortunately, what happened in Los Angeles happened in Los Angeles before we reached mm -hmm. that moment. And so then you go on, and I think it's fair to say, to, to work for sort of every great liberal campaign that lost the presidency. You work for Hubert Humphrey. You work for Ted Kennedy, for, for Walter Mondale. What were your positions on those campaigns? I—that's I, I, uh, a little bit of an exaggeration. I worked for—I worked for Ted Kennedy in his presidential campaign. I worked for Geraldine Ferraro in. Uh, Got in, it. Okay. That's I have fun. to work for the Italian candidate uh, <laughs> in the Mondale campaign. So I helped—I uh, helped in the vice presidential campaign. I didn't work in the 
in the Humphrey campaign. Huh. I mean, I voted for Humphrey, but but I had to go back to school and not take another year off my life in order to do that. So I ended up returning to MIT and becoming a voter again. Right. And so what kinds of political positions do you end up taking these sort of future campaigns? And then you're, you're one of the founding members of People for the American Way, I believe, as well. Well, I was the, uh, I was the first employee of People for the American right. Way, and I, therefore I made myself the president. And uh, <laughs> so was, now, they, now they call me the founding president. I helped start that organization with Norman Lear, the television writer and producer, whose idea it was. I mean, the reality is he had an idea for a TV commercial, and, and the organization grew out of a 30-second mm-hmm. spot, the closing line of which, uh, in talking about Jerry Falwell and some of the other TV ministers was, that's not the American way. And so we uh, started an organization called People for the American Way that worked uh, mostly on First Amendment issues, but everything from separation of church and state to mm-hmm. textbook censorship to uh, political religious tests for public office. In your professional life here, what are you learning how to do? Well, we, I learned how to do in the McCarthy campaign. I ended up doing scheduling and advance work, so doing big events and rallies and issue events. In People for the American Way, I learned how to do television. We ran TV commercials over the course of the seven or eight years that I was the president. Did a lot of media and work with work with the media. There came a point when I decided that I wanted to do something different, and my brother and I uh, started a firm called Podesta Associates. We uh, figured at the time either one of us could decide it was a bad idea and leave, and we wouldn't have to change the stationery. <laughs> And I, I should say for, for the audience here, you, your brother is a little-known political operative named John Podesta, who's currently chairman of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Correct. And he was President Clinton's last chief of staff and worked as well in, in the Obama White House. Mm-hmm. So how do you get into lobbying? Is Podesta Associates a, a, a lobbying firm? Well, we do lobbying and communications work, and we've done both lobbying and communications, public relations work from those early days in 19. 19- in 1987 when John and I started in a one-room basement office in a townhouse on Capitol Hill. We tried to uh, solicit clients who who we offered help in terms of having their agendas be uh, fulfilled using both techniques of lobbying and and communications. And and why did you decide to do that? So uh, up until then, your your career is very mission-driven. The candidates you pick to work with are, are, are pretty, you know, they're, they're ideologically very consistent. People for American Way is a very mission-driven organization. When you were thinking about starting this firm, what, what precipitated the jump? Well, we, I mean, we, we continue to do mission-driven work then and now. We represent nonprofits. Our first client was the National Education Association. Our second client was the National Abortion Rights Action League. We did a lot of consistent work, but we also worked for, for companies on intellectual property issues, and we helped with the be- very beginnings of the biotechnology industry, uh, working with uh, a company called Genentech, which was one of, mm-hmm. our, one of our very first clients. So in the beginning, we were doing a mixture of, of, uh, of nonprofit advocacy and, and work for, for companies, and that's still... Uh, we still do those sorts of assignments for people. How do you define lobbying? I think it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and a lot of people don't have a very clear sense of, of, of what it is in their heads. So, so how do you define lobbying, and what is the job of the lobbyist? The job of the lobbyist is simply to help the client marshal the the facts and the arguments and to bring those facts and arguments to bear on public decisions. 
lobbying has gotten to become a dirty word, partly as a result of politicians saying we're not going to accept contributions from lobbyists, so we're not going to allow lobbyists to hold public office. But lobbying is as old as the country, as old as the First Amendment. Everybody has lobbyists in Washington. The nurses have lobbyists. The teachers have lobbyists. The AIDS community has lobbyists. Uh, and uh, so that across the board, there are people who who help companies, nonprofits get their point of view across. And we're, we're happy to, uh, to do that kind of work. It does not involve any subterfuge or, or anything else. We bring creativity to what we do and enjoy doing it. So let me ask you about some of the things that I think people will, will wonder about, about hearing that. So one is that there's a kind of share a voice question, right? There are, as you say, there are lobbies for nurses, there's lobbies for, for kind of every group and issue group you could imagine. But lobbying costs money. It sometimes costs a lot of money to get really good lobbyists like yourself. And if you are Google or Bank of America, you have the money to get a bunch of really good lobbyists, whereas if you are just some folks out in Missouri who are worried about you know some issue of importance to you, you probably don't have the money to get the folks who can help you marshal those facts, get into the right offices, get those facts before the right people, sort of understand the byways and pathways of Washington, which get increasingly complex. On the one hand, it seems to me that the actual act of lobbying is a very kind of value-neutral act. But the thing people worry about with lobbying is who can afford that act. Well, I think that's a fair question and a fair point. We have a, if you will, a, a scale of fees that, you know, we'll take NGOs, nonprofits at lower fees because that's all that they can afford and we like working with them and have always from the very beginning in 1987 had clients like that. But I think that, you know, if you're a local community group in southwestern Missouri, the chance of you're having a Washington lobbyist is much smaller than if you're if you're a multi-state financial institution or mm-hmm. or whatever. So I so it's a fair point that wealthier and more sophisticated people have that. But there are lots of public interest organizations. Ralph Nader has spawned quite a few. The environmental community has a plethora of groups that work hard and very effectively for those folks who are worried about the toxic dump in southwestern Missouri. And the little people sometimes, little little people often win. You know, you go to the EPA and they don't care whether you're rich or poor. They care whether your case is good or bad. I think you can create a an inaccurate picture if you just look at, at who has the money. It's better to have more money than less money, <laughs> generally speaking. Uh, I don't think having a little bit of money means that you can never you can never win. We've often won one for for people with low budgets in legislative fights that that you would think would be uh, unlikely to be successful. So let me ask you two things about the role money plays because I think this is a very misunderstood part of how Washington works. You talked about the job of marshalling facts and figures and arguments. And I think to a degree, people really don't appreciate the job of a lobbyist is a little bit like the job of a lawyer, that it's often a a job populated by lawyers and people with law degrees. And it is people going in front of members of Congress, chiefs of staff, staffers, regulators, et cetera, and making the very best argument they can. The part that can skip over, though, is how do you get in front of those people? How do you get their time? How do you get a moment on their schedule? Because these are busy people, right? It's I, As a reporter, I know it can be very hard to get senators to sit down. How do you as a firm, how do you as an individual lobbyist 
build up the relationships and build up the context that allow you when you call to such and such senator's office to get an audience with someone who is overstressed, has too little time, isn't getting back to see their family enough, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what role does money play in that? Because I think very much the the view people have is that the way lobbyists get that meeting is through holding fundraisers, is giving campaign contributions, and that that is really where kind of money greases the way to have the time to make that argument. I support many Democrats. I, 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 you know, I give money to to people I admire and people who are friends. Every now and then, there's a Republican in that category, but I'm I give ninety nine percent of my political contributions to to Democrats. I don't find that they that they do anything I ask them to do as a result of those <laughs> contributions. The staff who most of the time lobbying is done with the staff on Capitol Hill are unaware of who's made contributions to the boss or not. For the most part, it's a straight-up process that, that the staff is trying to listen to people on all sides of a question and trying to recommend to the House member or the senator what the right, uh, what the right decision might be. In the, in off, but the, at the end of the day, it's the, it's the senator or the representative who decides, not the staff member. But, but so how do you get that meeting then? I mean, if it, if, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a little skeptical that, that money doesn't play a part there. It seems to me from people I've talked to on, uh, and I think both sides of this a bit, that there can often be a table stakes issue, that if you're not one of the people supporting them, it's a little bit harder to get that meeting if you're not supporting them when they're in trouble. But, but if it isn't the money, how do, you, how do you get on that chief of staff's calendar? Why, why do they take your call at all? Well, if you do this long enough, you get to meet a lot of people, you get to know a lot of people. But I also think if you waste people's time or don't have crisp, clean, clear arguments, you may not get a second meeting. So part of the staff's job is to is to understand the issues that their boss has to consider. I don't find that I get I get more meetings because I've been doing this longer or may uh, make more political contributions than the people in my office or people in people on the other side of the issues that I work on get. I think the 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 common sense is is that it's a sort of pay to play system. I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. 
burrow.com slash box. This is a piece of academic work that I always found interesting. Have you ever read the, this argument about lobbying as a legislative subsidy? Oh, uh, no. So there is this argument, and I think it's fascinating sort of in this exact point, which is it kind of begins with the question of why are lobbyists somewhat split by party, which is to say you just mentioned a minute ago that you primarily support Democrats. If lobbying was just pay to play, you would actually assume that lobbyists would just be giving more money to whoever was against an issue. But in fact, they tend to support people who line up with their party, with their ideology. And, and the argument of this paper, which I've also thought is interesting, is that the lobbyists end up acting to some degree as an auxiliary staff for members of Congress. They bring them information. They bring them arguments. They, in some cases, even help draft legislation. But that in order for that kind of relationship to work, they need to be basically ideologically sympathetic to each other. A very liberal lobbyist is not going to be a good kind of shadow staff member for a very conservative politician. And that in that respect, what you have is kind of a genuine sympathy. And so, so to your point, these relationships are, are real. They're people who respect each other, often people who work together in the past. But that what is happening is that the lobbyists are helping structure information. It isn't a bribe in the way people have often thought of it, but, but what it is is that when you have a lot of staff that is helping structure information based on who can pay to have that information structured, what you have is a bias in the conversation towards issues of concern to folks who have the money to, to put those issues on the table. I mean, I think that wealthy interests tend to have more lobbyists than, than interests that are poor. But I don't think the poor are unrepresented. You know, I've worked for the Children's Defense Fund, whose mission it is to advance the interests of poor children. And members are really interested in poor children. They don't say, well, can they come to my fundraiser or how much, how much have they given me? They care about constituencies. Yes, I think we do help structure information and, and help provide information to members and staff. And I think that information is, is valuable to them. And one of the things that we must do if we're good at our job is to provide accurate information. If the information that we provide is cooked or biased or, or misleading, there'll be some, someone else coming in right behind us who gives, who gives the accurate information. No, there are people who have different preferences based on information that's received. But I think that there's no question in my mind that members of Congress crave more information. So, you know, some of them, some of them have had their mind made up before the information is presented. Right, sure. uh, you know, on 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 both sides of the spectrum, but most members of Congress would like to be well informed before they make a decision on something. But but so one question I have about that is sort of the model you're setting up here, as I understand it, is that there's this pretty rich informational ecosystem, and you know, while it's the case that wealthy interests have more lobbying behind them, it, it's not the case. Certainly, they're the only ones who have this kind of representation. And I think on very big issues, that's true, right? I mean, I think that if you lobby for a big energy interest that is arguing that global warming isn't a problem, that there are other ways that information that global warming is a problem is going to get to that member. Whether or not they believe global warming is a problem is, is in this political context an open question. But there is a tremendous amount that Washington does. It is very small, but not, not necessarily small in the amount of money. It is a $10 billion tax break here, a $100 million tax break there, a provision of how a, something works in the health care bill that is related to drugs or biologics. In those cases, 
there might just not be a conversation over that particular issue unless somebody's paying to make it one. And there is where it often seems to me that lobbying is particularly very effective. There isn't always somebody coming in right after you to make the case for this or that tax break that affects the paper mill industry. And that in those cases, you know, those are not the things that I think people sit at home worrying about. They're not whether or not Obamacare passes. They're not whether or not we get a budget or a government shutdown. But they do add up to a lot of money. They do add up to complexity in the tax code. They do add up to things people do care about in aggregate. And that in in those cases, it can be very powerful to have a on an issue you really just, you know, as a as a politician, as a member of Congress, are not that engaged in. If somebody comes in, they make a good argument, they're correct, you know, these many paper mills will close if the tax break doesn't get extended, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody comes in and makes the other side because nobody even knows that tax break is around. That's a very powerful thing, it can be a very profitable thing. But when it happens over and over and over and over again, you get not on these highly ideologically charged issues, but on these kind of unknown little parts of the government, you do get a sort of systematic bias that over time can become a problem for the tax code, a problem for just sort of the edges of public policy. Well, I, I, we've just been through that process with the with the so-called extenders uh, tax bill. Right. Uh, and these are, I should just say, the, these, are, these are tax breaks for the most part that they are set in law to expire every year. And so every year there's this big, huge push to extend them. Some of them are for corporations. Some of them are for, are for poor people, actually, in this case. And Congress just recently made about $700 billion of them permanent or near permanent. So let's keep score. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether there was a provision in there for paper mills, but, but there were a number of provisions that, that involved corporate tax preferences mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't have to amortize your capital expenses. You can, you can take them as expenses right. in the year that you buy them. There are all sorts of the research and, and experimentation, research and development tax credit which was made permanent and which had been previously uh, extended f- for a year or two or sometimes a couple more. But, you know, those those are things that are very valuable to businesses and involve big tax deductions. And there were people who were animated by the policies that, that favored R&D. That wasn't only the Republicans who favored R&D. Democrats think that the R&D tax credit promotes technology investment, promotes new industries. And so there was there was some widespread agreement on that. Democrats fought harder for the child care credit, for the education credit, and a deal was struck between the Democrats and the Republicans. And uh, the other uh, image people have is that Washington doesn't work. Washington actually worked pretty well this year. They passed a lot of legislation. They funded the government. They made many of these tax extenders permanent. Some of them are very valuable to poor people and to working families, and some of them are very valuable to some of the biggest companies in the country. Right. And so in, it was in the nature of that compromise that some people cared more about the big companies and some people cared more about the children, but the children weren't unrepresented in the negotiations. The working families weren't unrepresented in the negotiations. And in both cases, they had lobbyists. Uh, so so uh, the education lobby lobbied for the education tax credits. The high-tech industry lobbied for the R&D tax credit. That's the way compromise is made. That's the way legislation is fostered. And and there were legislative advocates, i.e. lobbyists, essentially pushing each of those provisions. And the Congress, in its wisdom and in compromise, the Democrats agreed to some things they didn't really care about or didn't really like, and the Republicans agreed to some things that they didn't really care about or didn't really like. 
all in all, uh, sensible tax policy was was made that is not entirely favoring corporations or entirely favoring working families, and everybody got something out of the process, and the Congress actually worked. The Congress passed a highway bill for five years that is that is enormously significant in terms of our the condition of our roads and bridges and transport systems. So it was a compromise. Everything that passes in the Congress is inevitably a compromise. Right. It is not, we don't have a, a system in which one party controls everything as long as the Democrats are in the White House and there are a sufficient number of difficult to please Republicans, the Democrats and the Republicans have a chance to work together. Right. So I think one of the interesting things about 2015 has been that it's, you, you know, you've seen a lot of congressional productivity, but it's been of a different kind. I think for a while, you know, you go back to 2010, 2011, there are real efforts to get these big, highly ideologically important compromises, a big budget deal between Boehner and Obama or, or total tax reform. And here they've done these things like a dock fix, a highway bill. They're making progress on No Child Left Behind. They did this big sort of government spending and, and, and tax extender deal. But, you know, I think if you look at the tax extender deal, and I'm not sure this is a great example because I do not think deficit hawkery is underrepresented in Washington. But I think one way of understanding it would be to say, well, they just put $700 billion on the credit card that is going to have to be paid off at some point in the future. And, and obviously, you know, more over time with interest and more if they make those Obamacare tax cuts permanent. And children in the future, right, like people who will be paying taxes 30 years from now were, were underrepresented in it. This is kind of a turtles all the way down argument, and I, I want to be upfront about that, that you're never going to get this kind of perfect distribution of, of share of voice in Washington. It just you, – you can't. There's always some interest. No matter – if you ban lobbying, you'd have a lot of interest that were left out of whatever the, the resulting equilibrium is. But it does seem that you have two kinds of things that really get heard here. One is things that people feel very strongly about, and the other is things that people are willing to – pay a lot of money for them to be heard very loudly. And that there's this kind of other category of thing, which is is the one that I think is, is worth worrying about. And it's not always one that people do worry about, but is day-to-day -day stuff that may matter, but are not the thing that Democrats and Republicans want to fight over and is not the thing that anybody makes money on, but might be important in the long run. And I think the reason you have a lot of concern over say, the amount of industry influence over something like Obamacare is that the feeling is you've got a lot of Democratic and Republican interest in whether the bill passes or not. And then what is going on on the 1300th page of that bill is of less interest to anybody. And so that's where you get a sort of disproportionate share of corporate voice. Let's take Obamacare. The most uh, contentious element about Obamacare was, was the issue of data exclusivity for, <laughs> for uh data that biotech companies file with their applications. Did, did you say the most contentious issue? The most contentious issue. I is, mean, is, I mean, that, uh, is that your view that that was the most contentious issue? Yes. So I think that's such an interesting thing, right? Because I covered Obamacare. And if you had asked me to list the 10 most contentious issues, I wouldn't have said that one. And I'm not saying – I think you're probably right and I'm probably wrong. But I think that <laughs> – I think there's something very interesting in that, right? I would say the public option, you know. Stuff well, like I mean, that. there were there were a, there were a whole host of issues right. that, that divided abortion, the, the Democrats, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, and that made all the headlines. You were talking about where companies right. have an impact on the small issues. Yeah, and I'm giving you an example. Yeah, no, this is super interesting. Yes, so please continue. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt so, you. So, so uh, there was a dispute uh, as to how long 
the data that a pharmaceutical biotechnology company turns into the Food and Drug Administration would remain confidential versus having it be open to the public. And there was a dispute about the number of years that that might be. The decision that was made by the House and by the Senate was that the number would be 12 years. It's important to remember that the biotechnology company might have spent $2 billion conducting clinical trials, and it's the data of those clinical trials which they spent $2 billion on that some argue should be public data Mm -hmm. on day one, and they argued it should remain confidential for 12 years. 12 years won the day. It was supported by a majority of Democrats and Republicans on the committee that has jurisdiction over this part of Obamacare. It was over the objection of the chairman of the committee, Henry Waxman, who lost the fight. But on the Senate side, it was Ted Kennedy who, who, who was on the opposite side from Henry Waxman in favor of, in favor of 12 years. Well, Massachusetts has a, Massachusetts a lot more biotech has, than, Massachusetts than Santa has Monica. Massachusetts a, <laughs> a lot more biotech than, than Santa Monica. That, uh, Santa Monica, true. because for folks who don't know, Henry Waxman, he's retired now, I believe, right? He's retired. But he, he, was, he, was a, he was a great legislator from uh, Southern California, from Santa Monica, L.A. A, a giant in the Congress, right. uh, the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee that had jurisdiction over this. And didn't didn't right. lose very very many votes yeah, he, when he, he was won the more chairman, than he lost. and even won some when he was when he was in the minority. But in this case, it was an alliance between the biotechnology companies, but also between the patients who are seeking cures for the diseases that they have. There are groups for every for mm-hmm. every small disease, uh, many of which none of us has ever heard of, and they're arguing for more and more incentives for more and more research so that eventually some small biotech company might come up with a cure for this disease that only afflicts 10,000 people in the United States. That argument uh, won the day. Fast forward to 2016 in the TPP trade deal. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Trans-Pacific trade, Partnership deal. trade Deal. That is, that is, uh, that has been negotiated by the United States Trade Representative in the Obama administration and and 16 other governments across the Pacific, reduces that number to five years mm-hmm. for international standard. So that's become an issue in whether or not the Trans-Pacific Partnership shall be ratified by the government. Some of the people who were active in, in the fight to have the U.S. standard be 12 years are dismayed at the fact that the that the uh, I'm sure they are they gave away <laughs> that, that they just lost seven years in some closed private meeting in Honolulu right. with a bunch of governments they can't pronounce right. One of the things that I, I've come to think about Washington is that I'm a little not much of a physics nerd. I did not get good grades in it, but I like reading about physics and and in physics there are different rules for big things and small things. There's relativity on the on the large scale and quantum physics on the small. And Washington is a is a bit like that. And I think a lot of people, even people who consider themselves political junkies, they follow these kinds of big fights with dynamics that are that, that are generally pretty clear, that are generally pretty consistent, very, very partisan, right? So there's big fights over things like Obamacare and the stimulus and, you know, sort of all the things that we think of as these clashes that make the the front page of the New York Times. And then there is what takes up a lot of a member of Congress's day. And, and a lot of, I think, your life, which are these, you know, really oftentimes vicious, deep, detailed, aggressive fights over much smaller parts of law, parts of law that really don't get reported on outside of trade publications. I mean, I 
covered Obamacare intensely for, for years, since before it was Obamacare, back when it was, I'm an Obamacare hipster, back when it was Max Baucus, you know, and his prepare to launch meeting. And biologics is, it's a, it's a debate I'm familiar with, but it isn't one that there was ever a lot of public interest in. It isn't one that I ever focused a lot of coverage on. But it took up a lot of time from a lot of members. And I just think this is a this is an important thing that people often don't recognize about Washington, that even when you think on the, the big level that nothing is getting done because nobody's agreeing, there's actually a lot going on here. And the question of something like Obamacare isn't always whether or not it passes, but what it says on page 1200, 1300, 1357. And it really matters. And, and that, that brings me to something I, I wanted to ask. I saw an estimate while I was you know preparing to talk to you. That federal lobbying in 1998 amounted to about $1.8 billion, and now it is above $30 billion. What do you think accounts for the explosion of expenditure on, on lobbying? What, what do you think has led to that kind of growth? Because we still have the same number of people in Congress, and we still – I mean the, the fundamental structure of the American government isn't different. But this particular approach to trying to influence it is, and it's much bigger. I suspect the first number was more accurate than the second number, hmm. which is the, to say the earlier number was probably more accurate than the current number because a lot of lobbying has gone underground in recent years, in part driven so by the Obama administration campaign against lobbying. So, so you don't think it's $30 billion. I you think, think it's higher than, you think 30, it's higher than, 30, higher than okay. $30 billion. So, so the difference is even bigger than bigger what I just than, said. Bigger than the comparison you just gave because so many people are, right. are engaging in lobbying activities but not reporting lobbying, right. not, not calling it lobbying. They call it something else. They call it legal work. They call right. it public relations work. They call it grassroots work, mm-hmm. none of which are reportable as lobbying. So much of lobbying has gone – as a result of stigmatizing lobbying, much of lobbying has gone underground and, and is invisible to citizens and to journalists because of that. But I think people have discovered that Washington matters a great deal. The decisions of the of the SEC or the or the FDA or any of the other alphabet soup agencies, and my favorite is of course OIRA. Uh, the Office of Information, Office of Information, Information and Regulatory, and Regulatory Affairs, Affairs yeah. at the Office of Management and Budget in the Executive Office of the President, yes. if you want the full and, title. And, and, and we should say, ORIRA is kind of a – it is a choke point on regulations. They they do a tremendous amount of sort of traffic copying, I think is a, an easy way to put it, of what regulations get made and, and don't made. So, well, yeah, all so regu- they're, they're very powerful but very unknown. All regulations go through that office. So I think that you know we you mentioned Google earlier. It was not very many years ago that Google had a single person in a right. rent an office suite in Washington, the same true of Microsoft a number of years before the Microsoft litigation when Microsoft discovered Washington and biotechnology companies now uh, now worry as much about Washington as they do about discoveries in the lab getting things through the process at FDA is, is often as difficult and as rigorous as, as right. finding a cure to a disease. So as the, as the economic stakes have, have risen and the power of the federal government has risen and the regulatory state has increased, lobbying has substantially increased. It used to be that businesses would join the Chamber of Commerce and, and uh, let, them, let them have at it. Right. Now they have a trade association for everything. 
Yes, uh, uh, yeah, as I yeah. see in my email inbox every morning. In a coalition for for all the things the trade trade associations internally can't agree on, and then everybody has their own office. So the so the amount of the amount of lobbying is. Uh, is has increased geometrically. So, so I think the liberal critique of this, right, is that what's happened here is that campaign finance reform has been unwound to a substantial degree and that over time, for a million different reasons, we have corporations and, 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 and other kinds of organizations as well, unions, have figured out it is a good investment to put money into influencing Washington and they should pay for it. The conservative critique of this is that as – and you, you mentioned this a minute ago – as the government has grown bigger, as a regulatory state has become more more immense, it has become more important for corporations, for Google, for biotechnology companies to be in the room when those regulations are, are being made, to be represented when the legislation is being drafted, and that this is a kind of unstoppable trend as long as you're going to have a continuously growing government. It just leads to a kind of a crony capitalism where, you know, there's this huge incumbency advantage. Do you see this growth as a problem? And if so, which kind of problem? Or is your view that lobbying was underinvested in in 1998? Well, I mean, I think that it's not just the Googles and the biotechs. It's the, you know, it's coal and oil and, right. and uh, manufacturers and, yeah, absolutely. and automobiles and, and the like. The U.S. Corn Association. <laughs> exactly. There's a sweet potato. I mean, there is, there is a, a sweet potato, you know, association. You know, sh- sugar beets are very important. <laughs> uh, what, what's funny is that sugar beets really are very important in Washington. It is a, absolutely. It is a important, um, an important issue when we do the farm bill. Sugar is very important. There's yeah. a big fight that goes on. Every year between the subsidies given to sugar producers and the companies that use sugar in their products who would right. prefer to have market-based prices for sugar rather than highly highly increased prices as a result of federal policy. But, but so is this a problem? I mean, and is this, is this something that should make people upset about lobbying, upset about the growth of government or neither? There is unquestionably a clash of big interests mm-hmm. that go on in Washington and lobbyists are there to – to advance their clients' cases and their clients' views. And at the end of the day, the government the government has to decide one way or another. Do we subsidize sugar, increase the price of sweets, or do we uh, remove the subsidy for sugar and have more market prices? Those are big political economy questions. And if there were no lobbyists, those questions would still be there. Those decisions would still get made, only they might get made uh, with a little less information than they have now as a result of lobbying. Well, one thing that has happened is that as you've seen that growth in the amount of money spent on lobbying is that the disparity between what you can make as a congressional staffer or a White House staffer and what you can make by leaving and going into lobbying has really exploded. You know, you have staffers who are, you know, making, you know, 150000 at you know, sort of top out in that area. You know, that's that's certainly a good salary. It's more than most Americans make. It is not that much if you're trying to raise a family in Washington, D.C. and, you know, you, you run in a circle of, of lawyers and trade association folks and, and management consultants and whatever else. And, you know, those relationships are, are really important. We talked earlier about how do you get on someone's schedule. Well, if you've been friends with that person for 20 years, it's, it's a lot easier. And so the fact that you have this huge core of former members of Congress, former congressional staffers, former White House staffers who have gone into the lobbying industry definitely gives folks who can pay for lobbyists an, an ability to get on the schedule that 
most people who do not have those kinds of deep relationships don't have. Is that a problem? Is that something people should worry about? And, and is it something people should worry about that potentially members of Congress or staffers think a little bit about what are they going to do when their tour of duty in government is over and that the, that disparity is so high that, you know, maybe they don't want to piss off someone who might be able to one day give them a job. Inevitably, members of Congress piss off people. You know, if you're for in the, fact, if all you're Americans, the, as far as I know. Yeah, well, I mean, they, I mean, they have, they, you know, <laughs> including their constituents. Right. But, but I think that if you stand with the, the sugar producers, you won't get a job with the with the people who make candy. Right. And if you stand with the candy people, you won't get a job with the with the sugar producers. <laughs> so, so I think people, you know, I think members make choices. They vote for they vote on one side or another of issues. I don't think they make those decisions based on their job prospects for the future or or which trade association pays better or whether where they're more likely to get things. I think most members of Congress uh, try to do the right thing by the country, try to do the right thing by their constituents. They certainly have different ideologies, you know, but in many places on the Hill, uh, they actually are able to work together. It was Speaker Boehner and, and Minority Leader Pelosi who worked on the so-called doc fix, uh, actually called in the uh, parlance SGR, the Sustainable yep. growth, growth Rate. Rent. You know, the two of them uh, negotiated in secret for a, for months and then came up with a plan and, you know, managed to do that. That was, uh, that was unquestionably good public policy because each year we were, we were somehow or other trying to provide a temporary respite from the sustainable – from the inevitable march of the sustainable right. growth rate this was to, reduce, a, to reduce doctor's fees. Th- this was a formula that was embedded in Medicare that because they had misjudged what health care costs would be in the long run, kept every year basically forcing what would be a massive cut in the, the payments to doctors who participate in Medicare – Congress would never let that happen, but but every year there would be this big sort of fight about would they, you know, delay the SGR? How would they do it? How would they pay for it, et cetera, which is very, by the way, as far as I can tell, good for the lobbying industry, but not a great way to do work for the country. But let me push on one part of that because, you know, we talked earlier about how you have a lot of these very ideologically sympathetic lobbying firms that work with different offices. In those lobbying firms, maybe are people you used to work with. In his memoir and I and I don't I don't want to make you or anyone answer for Jack Abramoff, but he talks about <laughs> how a strategy of his would be to start, you know, mentioning, you know, when he knew somebody was getting a little bit near retirement, you know, you're the kind of guy we could really use around here. And then th- that person just knowing that that maybe was an option would become a little bit friendlier to his interest. And as you say, it's not that they would never piss him off or never vote against him. But that when you've been making $150,000 for a while and before that 75 and you got two kids in private school and, you know, you're hoping your next job will help you, frankly, get out of debt and, 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 and pay back your student loans and, and have the life you've decided that, that you should be able to have. And somebody is, you know, potentially offering you four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, but, you know, pretty clearly not if you screw them over in the next year or two. I mean, that seems to me to have... An effect, and it, and it's not you know I know what the children's defense. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I, I'm pretty sure that the advocates for poor children don't pay quite as well. That's correct. Well, Mr. Abramoff went to prison for his mm-hmm. flaunting of the of the lobbying laws. So, but he becomes he becomes a symbol of lobbying, even though he violated the laws that all of us follow. A small aside: when he got when he got in some political hot water, he actually called me and asked me to be his lobbyist. Oh, really? Uh, so, what did you say? I, I I didn't know him at the time. He it was before he became infamous. 
uh, went back to my office and talked to a couple of my Republican colleagues in the office, and they said, "No, I don't think I don't think you do that." <laughs> and so I didn't. But I mean, I think that that there are people who break the law. There are people who engage in illegal behavior, bribing members of Congress, bribing staffers. Those members of Congress and those staffers have gone to jail as well. And the the issue becomes in the public dialogue about these questions somewhere or other because because Abramoff went to prison and because Congressman Ney, who he bribed, went to prison and some staffers who he bribed went to prison, that somewhere or other that has something to do with me. It doesn't. There are good cops and bad cops, right. good priests and good and bad priests. There are honest lawyers and dishonest lawyers. So I think it's important to remember that most of us follow the law with great care, and occasionally somebody doesn't, and they get caught and they're punished. But but that I think is a you know everything you say there is correct. To some degree, maybe I should not have brought Jack Abramoff into this conversation because I'm I think glad you quite, did. <laughs> I think that that it does raise a question of he crosses the line into what's illegal, right? I mean, he he really went went very far. But I think the question is the sort of the, the lighter suasion of what is illegal, right? The, the lighter suasion of there is nothing illegal about, as and many, many people do it, of leaving Congress after a distinguished career. Then, you know, after following the rules, you sometimes have to wait a period of time, et cetera, taking a job for 3x or 4x or 5x a salary and lobbying people and getting on people's schedules and getting access to people who you, over the time, developed a great friendship with. And and that makes the arguments you're making more plausible. I mean, you know, we, we all have people we trust, and the same argument from my best friend just holds a power that that argument from a stranger doesn't have. And so when it comes to this question of who gets heard, right, there are only so many people with those great relationships in, in, in Washington. And to some degree, if the lobbying industry, which is, you know, as you say, possibly, I, I said it went up, you know, 15-fold in, in the amount of money it's spending. You say it's gone up more than that. If they've got the money and can buy up those relationships, it's one thing if this is a pure contest of ideas. But if it's a contest for the access to have those ideas be heard, that's a different thing. And it's not the fault of lobbying that lobbying has a lot of money. I mean, it, it, it is, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. But, uh, you know, I think like one question about it, do you think it's a bad thing that there is this huge pay gap? Do you think we, we don't pay members of Congress enough? I mean, how, how should one think about that question? How should one think about the fact that you can just make a lot more money lobbying your former friends in Congress and you can being in Congress and, and just trying to do your work there? I think you exaggerate the the number of X's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do I? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think the it's extraordinarily rare that someone goes out and gets five X. Okay, fair uh, enough. I mean, two X's is, is even a little high. One point five X, one point seven five X. If, in your example, the member, the staffer, or the member of Congress makes one hundred and fifty or one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a year, that's a lot of money in most places. Yeah. It's not a lot. It, the cost of living in Washington is very expensive. You know, it's not New York, but it's close. Yeah. You know, the starting salaries and lobbying are not four or five x. I have never found someone on the Hill, member or staff, say, "I want a job. What can I do to, right. you know, what what can I do to help?" Whether they say it directly, indirectly, subtly, or otherwise, I think most people just go straight ahead. And most most of us who who try to recruit people into our firms will be very careful about anything we might ever say to someone 
the most I've ever said to anyone on Capitol Hill is, if you decide you want to leave, you should come and talk with us. Right. That, that's never in the context of, now let's have a meeting about an issue, or now let's, or at the end of a meeting about an issue. That's a right. You know, that's a social interaction or a or a cup of coffee. Do you, do you not think that saying that to them at that point, just a little bit for the time they're there, while they know this is maybe a good option for them in the future, do you think that that, you know, doesn't make them a little more anxious about pissing you off? No, I don't think so. There's a sort of sense that you're suggesting that I get pissed off easily. Or, uh, <laughs> it's or true. That, I don't, I don't, or I don't that, know your temper. <laughs> or, that, or that people don't disagree with me all the time. There are members of Congress who are positively disagreeable with my point of view <laughs> who would remain someone I would admire. I mean, I love Henry Waxman. I think he's one of the best members we've ever had. There are probably 30 times when we were on other sides, on opposite sides of issues, and, and he won 28 and I won two. <laughs> but that doesn't, that doesn't make me feel any worse about him or better about him or as opposed to someone else who was, who was with me uh, none of those times. Let me ask you a, a broader question about Washington itself. The, the structure of Washington, the way Congress works, the, how polarized the parties are, it's changed pretty dramatically in the time you've been here. How has your job changed alongside it? How is the, the job of trying to navigate the waterways of Congress different today than it was when you started out? It used to matter less whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, and you used to be able to to go to Democratic offices and Republican offices and make your case. I don't think the lobbying community is unpleasantly polarized, but I think that that the Republicans do the Republicans and the Democrats do the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And we all do Bernie Sanders. <laughs> he, he's probably he's, he's, he's an independent. So, so let me ask you, because I know we're, we're running out of time here. Just a couple uh, smaller, more rapid questions here. What is your favorite book or what are your favorite couple of books about American politics? Well, probably Teddy White was the master, although I'm a big fan. He's a great chronicler of campaigns. Of campaigns. Yeah. I, I love campaigns. I'm, I'm a campaign junkie. And, mm-hmm. You know, I think that Mark Halperin and his partner, Heilman. John Heilman, yeah. Uh, Heilman are great contemporary reads. Are, are uh, you a fan of What It Takes? The, yes. The Richard Ben Kramer book? Yeah. That, that book got me into politics. Is that right? Yeah, to, to a large uh, degree. I enjoy reading about politics and, you know, I'm a sort of email junkie and mm-hmm. everything else, but it's... but. Uh, at the end of the day, it's also nice to escape from all this. Who would you say is the most sort of effective legislator that you have seen or worked with on both the Democratic and Republican sides? Ted Kennedy, Warren Hatch. Hmm. And um, and they've worked together often. They work together some. I mean, I think the reports of their cooperation may have been exaggerated <laughs> by both of them. But, but I mean, they, they had a really good personal relationship, cared about one another. And they collaborated on some things, and each of them is a real legislator who knows the value of compromise and, the, and was a wonderful listener. I, uh, I feel like the stories of Kennedy's effectiveness are, are legion and well-known, but I don't think, I don't think Hatch is as celebrated. So, so what, do you, what makes him effective? What, what, what has impressed you about him? I mean, he seems like a hard, hard rock, hard rib conservative, but I think he is, uh, he's, he's a very practical person who, you know, Hatch Waxman, is you don't normally think of Henry Waxman and Orrin mm-hmm. Hatch in the same thing. They created the generic industry. He's responsible for a great deal of legislation and has worked very effectively and and has many relation many fine relationships on the other side of the aisle, which is I think essential to being a good legislator. Is it harder to lobby the White House than it is to lobby Congress? 
No, I don't think so. The White House agencies are, and the White House itself are as interested in, in trying to uh, find the right balance in public policy. They're interested in understanding where everyone is and what, what the most important issues are and what the unintended consequences might be of a policy that they might initially favor. I don't think they're very different. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the White House economic team is less political than the average congressional hearing, certainly. Sure. They're interested in hearing data, information, and they're available for input and conversation on the things that they, that they work on and care about. I'll end on this question. This is something that uh, a listener of our, of our other podcast, Weed, sent in, which I thought was an interesting question. He said, what would you recommend to someone who wanted to lobby on an issue, not become a lobbyist? What have you learned about wielding power in Washington, about influencing people, about how things here work, that if you're just someone out there and there is an issue you care about, there is something you would like to see done, what have you learned that would be of use to, to them? What would you recommend to someone who wanted to lobby on their, on, on their own behalf but without resources and relationships? Be clear about what you're asking for. I've seen many people go in and talk to members of Congress with highly technical presentations about obscure issues and never, ever be clear about what it is they want the member of Congress to do. So you need to have an ask, mm-hmm. and you need as well to have your – to be able to describe the other side – if there's an opposing point of view, you can't ignore the opposing point of view. You need to say, these are the two choices, these are the two views, and this is why we think you should take view number one, which is our view. I don't think it's magic. I don't think it's a secret sauce. I don't think it involves money or perfidy. I think it is uh, it's good old-fashioned persuasion. If you're not used to Washington, if you don't know people already, how do you get that meeting? Well, most how do you people, get in front you know, of someone? I mean, I mean, most people will see... You can probably get a meeting with a staffer in any office, especially if you're a constituent in mm-hmm. that office or if the person has jurisdiction over the issue you want to talk with. You know, it's not like going to the complaint department at a department store where if you just stand in line, you get a meeting. Right. But there's nothing there's nothing secret or magic about it if you are patient and available and don't insist on having it on Tuesday afternoon between 2 and 3. You can almost always get a meeting. Tony Presta, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. That is the interview. Thank you so much to Tony Podesta for coming and taking the time to, to talk with me today. I'm Ezra Klein. This is the Ezra Klein Show. It is always going to be weird to say that. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, to Vox.com and Panoply, who are behind this show, and to all of you who listened and spent all this time uh, here in this interview. If you liked it, I would love if you give us a rating on iTunes, if you went and told your friends, if you subscribed, if you emailed me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And please come back next week when hopefully we'll have another fantastic guest. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.